Today on the podcast, I have my final NFL draft notes. I'll also be talking some NBA playoff basketball, as well as the Oklahoma City meltdown that we all just experienced. We'll be talking the Brewers' rough stretch as of lately. We'll be talking about the growth of the young Chicago White Sox. Talking about the Cubs finally hitting their stride and five hot takes of the week. This is the Sports Rant with Duke Coughlin. How's it going, guys? This is the Sports Rant. This is Duke Coughlin. You know the deal. It is April 25th, 2019. Today is the first round of the NFL Draft. If if that isn't just crazy. Football season is on its way, guys. It's so close. You know, we're having the draft now. Next thing we know, we're going to have training camp coming up. Then we're going to have preseason games. Then we're going to have regular season games. Then we're going to have playoffs. Then we're going to have Super Bowl. And then we're going to do it all fucking over again like we do every single year. And it just, it absolutely blows my mind that we're already here. It's already April. It's already almost May. You know? It just, it's crazy. But, with that all being said, let's get right down to it. Because there is a lot to go over from the world of football, from the world of basketball, from the world of baseball. Finally, getting back to a normal podcast. By the way, before I jump into this, I want you guys to know that if you want any more NFL draft coverage before the draft tonight, I did a full NFL episode last week, um, mainly because I'm an idiot, and I thought the NFL draft was last week. I don't know I don't know where this got kind of lost in my whole, uh, my whole scheme of things. Um, I don't know if I'm not getting enough sleep or if work should stress me out or what, what's, whatever's going on here. Um, so yeah, I recorded that a week early. Um, it's a great, it's still a great podcast to listen to. If you want to know kind of what's going to be happening today. Um, yeah, just a great reference point. Um, no matter what team you're a fan of, I kind of cover everybody, even the teams that aren't drafting in the first round. So, so that's my little plug, you know? Uh, if you do want to go listen to that, head on over to Spotify or whatever you're listening to this episode on. Go check her out. It was a it was a pretty good episode. Just ignore me saying today, it, you know, today in the NFL draft or what's going to happen. Just just ignore that. I'm an idiot. I, I I admit it. It happens. It happens to the best of us. We all kind of we we have those moments. Those moments where the soft spot on the back of our head just kind of shows up. But anyway, jumping into it. Going over some quick NFL stuff before the NFL draft. Just some final notes that I have before everything gets started today. Um, obviously, there was a blockbuster trade over the past week with uh, Frank Clark, uh, defensive end, getting traded to the Kansas City Chiefs from the Seattle Seahawks. Kansas City sends a 2019 first-round pick and a 2020 second-round pick for Frank Clark. Um, you know, this I... Anyone who follows me on Facebook or Twitter saw me uh, blow this trade to pieces. And uh, I'm going to continue to do that because while Frank Clark may only be 25 years old and, you know, is an effective pass rusher, no doubt he's a good good player, great player, you know. But 
they're gonna if if this trade's gonna equal out like what they're gonna get out of it, like if this trade makes sense, if you're gonna send a first round pick this year and a twenty twenty next year or twenty twenty second round pick next year, they have to sign Frank Clark. They have to. If they don't sign Frank Clark and this is a one year rental, this will be one of the worst trades in the history of the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, I think a lot of people are going around saying that this is a win now move. Um, this is Kansas City making an aggressive move because they see a Super Bowl window and they see that it could possibly close the second they have to pay Tyreek Hill or Patrick Mahomes giant contracts, which is a fair statement to make. But um, to give up a first round pick and a second round pick next year um, for a rental, it just it seems very very high. It seems like it, a pretty insane, pretty insane asking price. It it makes me really believe. You know, it makes a lot of people believe Seattle just completely fleeced Kansas City in this trade. And what makes this even worse, that makes Seattle win this trade more, has nothing to do with Seattle. It has everything to do with the fact that the Kansas City Chiefs already had an elite defensive end sitting on their team while he may have been a 3-4 defensive end, whatever, still equally important to that defense. You had a D Ford who, mind you, is three years older than Frank Clark. I'm not going to sit here and act like that doesn't exist. You have this guy right here who is already an impact player on your defense, who was a big part of keeping that defense together in a year where the defense didn't look very good and the offense carried the show. Um, you let you let him go. You trade him to San Francisco when you could have easily put the money that you're about to put in Frank Clark's pocket into D Ford's pocket and still have a first-round pick this year, which you could have drafted an edge rusher, mind you, and you could have had a second-round pick next year as well if you would have just paid one of your own players sitting in your own backyard. It just it, it absolutely blows me away. That's like, um, I mean, it's not the same position, but it's on the defensive line in the rush, you know. Uh, Frank Clark has shown that he can, you know, be a great pass rusher, but there are questions about his, you know, his run defense. And D Ford was a mixture of a little bit of both. He he reminded me a lot of an Akeem Hicks in there in the middle. And that's not something that I say lightly about a D Ford. And I, I really thought San Francisco got a hell of a player in that trade. And uh, you know, paying him the big bucks, yeah, that's one thing, but Kansas City could have brought this guy back. They could have found a way to make this work. They could have found a way to give him big money and still tell him, hey, we can't give you top money because we have Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill over here we're going to sign, but we can give you higher tier money, like big money still. But instead, they're going to have to pay Frank Clark to make this trade worth it. If Frank Clark only plays one season with the Kansas City Chiefs, this was a massive failure. I don't care if Frank Clark has 19 sacks next year. Um, I don't think that'll be the difference in Kansas City winning a Super Bowl or not. I I don't truly believe that. I think anything D Ford can do on a football field, um, if he, if he couldn't do it, and you know you can point to that you know penalty against the Patriots all you want. I don't totally buy that being the reason that Kansas City lost that game because there was a lot that Kansas City could have done before that point. Um, but if D Ford couldn't get you there on defense. You think magically Frank Clark is going to do it? I don't know. I just I don't buy it. I mean, a win now move, sure. You know, I always like seeing a like GMs being aggressive. You know, obviously with my GM being Ryan Pace, 
obviously, you know, ag- aggressive GMs, yeah, I dig them. But I just I don't I don't really love this move. Um, I don't love this move as much as Kansas City fans love this move as you know Seattle fans obviously love this move. You know, if I was a Seattle Seahawks fan, I'd be I'd be loving this because there was a good chance Frank Clark wasn't even going to play for you guys this year. You know, so interesting move from Kansas City, I gotta say. And uh, they could have drafted an edge rusher who could have you know paid on a who could have played on a much cheaper contract for the next four to five years. Um, maybe you know, maybe three, whatever. But still, it just seemed like a gross overpay. You know, nothing against Frank Clark. I'm sure he's gonna have a great, great season. But I, not the move I'd make. Um, anyway, with Seattle acquiring this pick, this gives them two first round picks, which could open them up to trade up if a team is willing to take two lower first round picks to go high. Um. Also, a big note coming out um, really yesterday would be uh, the Giants. Uh, a lot of sources coming out saying the Giants are really liking Daniel Jones out of Duke. Um, that That's really the direction that a lot of people think they're going to be going. Um, if that's what they want to do, I know it's always risky to trade back when you have a quarterback that you want, especially one that's going to be there. But if that's what they want to do, I don't think Daniel Jones is going to be you know, one of the first, uh, first two quarter, first three quarterbacks drafted. I think he's like that, definitely like fourth guy. Um, I, I could see maybe Drew Locke falling in the draft because of some of uh, some of the performances he had last year, but his arm talent is definitely there, and I think a team will definitely take a chance on that. Uh, I really thought, I really think the Giants should take Drew Locke. That was that was my pick for them. I think it makes a lot of sense for them to go there. Um, but you know, Daniel Jones could be like the fifth, sixth quarterback drafted in this draft. And if that's who the Giants are really looking at, either they could go somewhere else with their first pick because the Giants also have two first round picks. They could go somewhere else with their first pick that they're going to have, and then maybe trade Daniel with the second first rounder, or possibly trade back that pick in you know and you know take Daniel later maybe fall back a little bit in the draft maybe make a trade with a a a Green Bay Packers or Miami Dolphins or you know Seattle even and uh, load up on two two more first round picks they have three total first round picks if that's what they want to do I you know I think that would make the most sense like I said hard pressed to be the team to trade back when you have a quarterback available right there and you want to go get your guy. But like I said, I just, I don't totally buy that Daniel Jones will be one of the top five quarterbacks drafted. I think Kyler's going to be the first guy gone. I think lock lock, I think should be the next quarterback gone after that. I think Haskins is going to be gone after that. Um, I just, I don't, I don't know. I just, Daniel Jones. That's 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 the guy. I don't like it, and I'm not I'm not going to sit here and try to trash him. I thought he had a really good year last year and I think his completion percentage got um a little downgraded because of a lot of the drops he had to deal with uh over there at Duke. Um but I just I think he has an average arm. Um he can high point, he can definitely, you know, kind of drop the ball into the basket so to say. You know, he can get the ball where it needs to go. It's just really how much on a line it's going to be thrown, how fast it's going to be thrown. I don't buy that he has that big NFL arm. He does have an accurate accurate ball, definitely. 
Um, you know, tight spiral. I like what I like his mechanics. I like his footwork, everything like that. I just don't think he has that elite arm to be like the second quarterback drafted. So I, I don't know. I, I even, you know, I think in my mock draft, I might even have him falling into the second round just based on what I've seen off of him. You know, I watch film, a lot of film on all the, all of the quarterbacks really, um, in the like top, probably like top three rounds you know, project to where they're going to go. And Daniel Jones was just kind of like the most like bare bones, I guess. Um, I could be wrong though, you know, but I guess that, but that is the report going out right now is that the giants are really taking a look at Daniel Jones. Um, next more, uh, more trade talk out of the NFL draft. Um, there's report is coming out, uh, has come out with bleacher report that the Lions and the bills are willing to trade out of the top 10. Um, it makes sense with kind of where they're at, you know, like I've said before, not necessarily the most, you know, jam-packed, loaded draft. It's very top-heavy, so I think if you can get as many first-round picks or get as many, like, second-round picks as you can to get more of the players so you kind of have more of a shot to really snag a great one, you know, that'd probably be the better the better idea kind of going, and I think that's kind of what the Lions and the Bills are thinking of doing because, you know, they still need a lot of help. Uh, the Bills still need to get pieces around um, Josh Allen, and they still need to they still need to work on the defensive side of the ball. And with the Lions, you know, really they could go anywhere. The Lions would need a lot of help, really everywhere. And um, with with Matt Patricia really kind of trying to build his football team right now, I could see him taking more picks to get more players. Um, to kind of work with, to kind of help mold, you know, so it's not just we get this first round pick this year and now we have to wait next year before we have another high draft pick or, you know, have a, more draft picks when they could easily trade back, get more picks and then have more selection on what they want to do. Maybe draft for need a little bit. Well, I would never recommend drafting for need in the NFL draft unless the town is there. When you have more draft picks higher, you can fluctuate a little bit around that um even maybe take a second round pick that you get traded to you and work it to get a very good player traded from another team so um but i think top teams if i have to pick some to really trade up um i think packers because they have two first round picks and i could see them making a move to get a player that they want especially an elite uh elite player on the defensive side of the ball or one of the elite offensive tackles that are in, that are going to be in the top top 10 top 15 um i could also see the dolphins moving up if they want to go up and get their guy um if kyler murray is available that's very possible that the dolphins can move up to try to get him um i could see the redskins moving up if they see a guy they really want to get if they see like a drew lock still kind of hanging out there i could see them moving up to get him I could also see them moving up to get uh, uh, Dwayne Haskins. Even um, I think I think even with what I was saying with the Giants, poss- you know what I would do with them moving down. I could also see them moving up because of you know the first you know because of the capital they have in the you know first round picks lower. I could see them moving up into a higher pick if they were to not go after Daniel Jones, and um, possibly trade a second and that lower first to get into the top 10 if that trade would work and um you know draft two great players you know and, and it's shown that the giants aren't afraid to draft a great player instead of you know draft the best available instead of drafting for a need with them drafting saquon barkley last year 
Um, and also Seattle Seahawks, you know, they have two first round picks now. They can easily move up if they want to make um, a big pick. If they want to, you know, if they really see somebody up there in the top 10 that could really impact them immediately, that would be worth giving up. Maybe even those two first round picks to do it. I could really see Seattle doing that, especially basically getting a pick out of Frank Clark that, you know, they might have not gotten if Frank would have ended up walking. And finally, probably the biggest rumor out of the NFL draft this week. Um, this one came out on Monday. I don't know how, you know, how consistent of a report this is, but I thought it really was something that kind of take, you know, took me aback and uh, really confirmed some stuff that's been going on with the Cardinals talking about not wanting to draft Kyler Murray. Um, rumors around the league right now is that John Gruden really, I mean really, wants Kyler Murray. And he wants Kyler Murray so much that he is willing to trade Derek Carr to get it done. Um, obviously, you know, that makes sense. If you're going to draft Kyler Murray, you don't need a Derek Carr in the roster, especially with how much money Derek Carr makes. Um, personally, I I don't think I'd make this trade. I think it's what Gruden's going to do. I think Gruden's going to draft Kyler Murray. I, you know, I, I don't think there's any if ands, or buts about that. Um, I could even see him trading to the number one pick to make sure he gets Kyler Murray. Um, but they'd have to give up that fourth, that fourth pick in another late, another late first round. But like I said, you know, Gruden is Gruden's a madman. So I don't see it, you know, not, I don't see it being like an absolute impossibility. Um, I don't know. I just, I think Derek Carr gets a lot of flack. I think Derek Carr was a good player on a bad team and played badly because of it. Um, and I still think he has a lot of, a lot of mileage left in that arm. And I think he has a lot of good football left in him, but you know, on the flip side of that, Kyler Murray has shown last year in college football that he is definitely an elite talent and that he's not someone to be taken lightly. And that, um, if a team is going to decide to, you know, surround their franchise around this guy, you know, it's, it, it, it's a smart, it's a good idea. You know, everything shows that Kyler will be a good quarterback, but Kyler is also going to need help. And if Gruden trades away picks to move up to get Kyler, that could possibly affect how well he's going to be, he's going to play in this next year. Um, you know, and, and there's the Antonio Brown factor. What, what is Antonio Brown at this point in his career going to do with a rookie quarterback? You know, I, I was I was worried before the Kyler stuff started coming up with Gruden anyway, how him and Derek Carr would work out, you know, halfway through the year. So I I don't know, it's gonna be interesting. I'm really excited. I, I'm not gonna be able to watch the draft because I'll be at work, unfortunately, but I am going very excited to follow everything that's gonna be happening in the NFL draft today because Gruden has what, three first round picks in this draft. He's an absolute fucking madman, which he's proven by trading, you know, arguably top two, top three defensive player in the league. Um, yeah, anything can happen tonight. Anything can happen tonight. You know, once those players hit the podiums, or once those teams, once the commissioner hits the podium, because that's who goes on the podium, because that's who drafts it. Jesus Christ, couldn't get through that. <laughs> um, anything can happen. Anything can happen. Um, the NFL draft never disappoints. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, I will say right here before I jump on to another topic, though, um, 
I just I just watched a documentary, and it's kind of about uh, Lormy Tunsil and kind of what happened with him with uh, the guy leaking that Instagram picture of him smoking out of that bong and um, the screenshot of him texting one of the boosters in college about uh, you know getting money and doing that on draft night, and I just. I just want to say that I really hope that doesn't happen to anybody tonight. I hope um, there's no drama of that sense that happens tonight. I don't want to see a young man's career get destroyed tonight, any of them. I'm wishing every single guy in this draft the best. Um, obviously, you know, you hear how much I've raved about Nick Bosa, and I'm, I hate Ohio State. So I think that should say everything about how I feel about, you know, all these young players coming up. I just really hope nothing like that happens because – I remember watching the Laramie Tunsil thing happen live and just being just so disappointed, not in him, but disappointed that somebody would actually go out of their way to destroy somebody's character like that on one of the most important nights of their life. So um, good luck to everybody who is getting drafted. Good luck to all the top prospects. I hope tonight goes off without a hitch, without any drama of that sort. Um, So, yeah, that's where I'm going to finish there. All right, now to jump in to some NBA playoffs. Um, This has easily been like the most requested thing for me to talk about, Um, and for obvious reasons. Um, Yeah, guys, you you know, you know what, you know what's gonna happen here. You know what I'm gonna start talking about. Um, But before I jump into my boy Russell Westbrook, I'm gonna start talking about all the series here in the NBA Finals so far. Golden State is up 3-2 to two on the L.A. Clippers. Um, the Clippers brought it back um, to within a game last night uh, in a very high-scoring game. I think it was like 132-123 or something something in that ballpark. Um, the Clippers just will not die. I think Golden State takes it the next game and, you know, moves on to the next round. But I, I got to give props to the Clippers for being an eight seed, you know, and showing that they actually they got something brewing over there. Um, whether Lou Williams is going to be there long term, um, I don't think Patrick Beverly is a long term answer there. Um, there is talent on that team for sure. There's young talent, and ownership has given Doc Rivers the keys to really work with that team. So I think the Clippers are going to be a team that we are going to continue to see in the playoffs almost every year. Um, then going on to the Houston Rockets in Utah, uh, I really thought this was going to be a closer series, but Houston scoring just overtook this team um i guess utah didn't really have that you know spark that they had last year you know you could you could really feel it watching a utah jazz game last year but it just this wasn't there this year um so houston moves on to the next round and will play the winner of the golden state warriors and la clippers um portland versus oklahoma city portland from the get-go it just seemed like they wanted this series more um, they were the higher seed, so you know I I think it's kind of surprising that as many people thought it was going to be as close um, as it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people picked Oklahoma City, you know, myself included, to win this series. I, I think part of me did that too because of what Portland did to me last year. I I, I picked Portland to beat uh, Golden State, which of course was insanity. But I really believed in what Portland had in uh, McCollum and uh, and in Dame Lillard and in Nurkic last year. It, I, I really believed in that team. And, you know, of course, I pick against them, and they absolutely just dismantle Oklahoma City. You know, this sh- this series should have been a sweep. 
Oklahoma City, even in the game they won, you know what? They just they weren't there. They weren't all there. But I'm gonna get into that a little bit in a little bit here after I go through the rest. Um, but Portland convincing win in the series against Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, Denver and San Antonio. This has been a lot closer of a series than I thought as well. I thought Denver. I think I put down would win in five, and they are about to go to Game Six. Um, overall, really good series. Um, you know, Lamarcus Aldridge is an incredible basketball player, and Demar Derozan. Uh, Demar Derozan is definitely showing up in the playoffs this year. Um, so all my criticism criticisms of him in the past are being thrown out the window right now because he is. He's been incredible. He's done a great job. And Denver with Jamal Murray and Gary Harris and uh, uh, Jokic, like, they they seemed off those first few games. I mean, they're finally turning it on, especially Jamal Murray. I, I think he had, like, what, 27 and a quarter or something like that? He, he had a really big game um, the other night. But um, I, I thought this game was going to – I thought this series was going to end a lot earlier than it did. Um, I think Denver takes it. Very possible it could go seven just by how San Antonio has played them. Um, but just a great series. Just great, great basketball on in the Western Conference so far. Um, I'm really excited to see this. I'm really excited Golden, to see Golden State really get a challenge this year. I'm really excited to see this Houston series with Golden State considering how, how that series went last year. When that series went to seven, I thought that was the best series in playoff basketball last year. Um, so hopefully that continues to be at this uh, this next year. And I think Portland and Denver, that's that's a really intriguing matchup, you know. And if uh, Enos Cantor can continue to score for Portland um, and kind of maybe hold blows with uh, Jokic, it, it makes it interesting. It makes it really interesting. And now we move over to the East. I'm not going to lie. The East really wasn't all that exciting. I didn't really watch a whole lot of the East. Um the only one that really was exciting to watch was Philly and Brooklyn, and that was strictly because of Jared Dudley and Ben Simmons going at it. I mean, come on. Anyone with a brain knew that fucking the 76ers were going to win that series. Everyone knows that Jared Dudley's a scrub. It was just – it was genuinely entertaining. Just it, it and it always is, and you always get them in the playoffs. It's kind of similar to uh, Beverly going at Kevin Durant in the Golden State – you know, in the Golden State LA series. You know these guys don't aren't on the same level. But it's always entertaining to see these guys really kind of hit that fuck it button in the playoffs and just, just go at them. Go at them. It's like Stevenson, Lance Stevenson going at LeBron, you know, when, you know, back in the day when Stevenson was on the Pacers. Come on, Lance Stevenson knows that he doesn't hold a candle to LeBron. And when it comes to careers, it won't even be close. You know, they're not even the same stratosphere. But it shows that... You're not scared to go at some of the best players in the league, and that's 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 impressive. And I'll always have respect for that as long as it stays clean. Um, but yeah, I, the 76 ers were definitely going to win this series. I mean, come on, Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, JJ Redick, fucking Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid. Even though Joel didn't even really play in all the games, come on, it, there's no way they screw that up. There's no way they screw that up. And if they do, it's like monumental. Um, anyway, Milwaukee to Detroit. I think I watched like 10 minutes total of this entire series because I just, I knew, I knew, come on, 
Milwaukee was going to beat Detroit. Milwaukee was going to sweep Detroit, especially when Blake Griffin didn't play those first the first game, and that there was a chance he was going to be out the entire series. Like, come on, come on. I mean, are we even going? Who's going to waste their time actually watching that? I mean, Bucks fans, I get it. You know, if you want to watch Giannis, just you know, rub his nuts all over the Detroit Pistons. But I, it just doesn't sound appealing to watch to me because I just I knew. That was one of those like I'm I'm not a big like I know how something's gonna go. I'm a, you know I'm a big guy who believes in underdogs and believes that anything can happen on any given day. But come on, come on. And then we got Boston and Indiana. Now I thought this was actually gonna be a close series. I did watch a good amount of this series, the first two games, and it was it was pretty apparent early that playoff Boston showing up. Indiana just didn't. Indiana overachieved all year without a Victor Oladipo. Um, and it shows when you have to depend on a Miles Turner and Zabonis for offense, probably not going to win in the long run. You know, that can get you going for a while in the regular season, but that's that's about it. It's disappointing. I thought that game was going to go, I think I think I said six. Um, I don't I don't have my exact predictions in front of me. Um, but I, I, thought, I thought I just thought it would be more interesting. But Boston... Is hitting on all cylinders. Doesn't seem there's like there's any drama going on. Seems like Brad Stevens has a pretty good hold on the team. Kyrie looks happy. You know, Jason Tatum looks like he's picking up right where he left off last year. Jalen Brown is still a you know a matchup nightmare. You know, Boston's doing really good right now. Um, Milwaukee and Boston is going to be a hell of a series. I'm not going to predict right now because I'm gonna I'm gonna post on my I'm gonna post on the facebook page uh, my official predictions i also want to see who uh comes out of the clippers and golden state series so i can pick the houston golden state one and denver and portland or san antonio or portland whatever comes out of that i i, I kind of know how these how those are going to go anyway but it's just for the sake of being fair i'll wait for those to wrap up before i make predictions um also toronto and orlando i i like I said, I think I watched maybe 15 minutes of this entire series. I I, I liked Orlando. I, I did like them coming into the playoffs. Um, I watched a lot of Orlando Magic basketball, surprisingly, surprisingly, um, the last month of the regular season. And I, I saw a team that actually looked pretty motivated to come in here and, you know, maybe play an upsetter, maybe win two games in a series, you know, to make, you know, put a put a good championship quality team on their heels. You know, they won one. But, you know, it became pretty obvious pretty early that Kawhi Leonard is not going to be stopped right now um, as Kawhi Leonard is like has a ridiculous three-point percentage right now. But I'll get into that here in a minute. Um, but Toronto in the 76ers has the potential to go seven. And that is going to be a great series. It is going to be a gritty series. I, I can see a lot of Kawhi Leonard and Jimmy Butler kind of going at it. Um, I think Marcus Saul and Joel Embiid is actually a very intriguing matchup. Uh, Kyle, you know Kyle Lowry, who can actually shoot. Shockingly, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I I already know the meme coming out from Kyle Lowry. You know Kyle Lowry can shoot. Ben Simmons can't. Um, that, it's just it. It's a great matchup on paper. I honestly hope that series goes seven because I think that'll be very entertaining basketball. So now moving on, now that we've kind of got the first round figured out, um, we have to talk about some of these top performers so far. Um, I will start, I'll go 10 
I'll start at 10 and go up to one of the top 10 performers so far in the playoffs. Um, number 10, C.J. McCollum. He's averaging 24.4. Um, he's shooting 45.5% from the field, 44.7 from three. Um, also is averaging 5.4 rebounds, four assists, and .6 steals a game. Uh, C.J. had a very good series against Oklahoma City for sure. Um, very big impact player in that series. Um, number nine, Blake Griffin. Only played the last two games. Um, put up 24 and a half uh, points per game. Shot 46.2. Shot 46.2 from three as well. Um, had six uh, average six rebounds in those two games as well as a steal. Um, you know Blake. Blake's a good player. Blake. Blake is a really good player. Um, but he's not a good enough player to carry a team, and I don't think he ever will be, especially at this point in his career. He's 30. Um, he's had numerous, you know, knee issues. I always, I like Blake. Um, he's still a very intense player, and he's always, he's continuing to grow his game with age. He's continued to develop that jump shot, develop that three-point shot that he never had early in his career. Um, but simply put, against a team like the Bucks, with what Detroit has, they're just, it, it just never was gonna, it was just never gonna happen. And uh, yeah, that's just, that's probably gonna be the story of Blake Griffin's career. Um, very talented, you know, even, you know, at some point since career great, but could never carry a team. Uh, number eight, Joel Embiid. Um, in four games, he scored 24.8, shot 50.7 from the field, shot 23.1 from three, did not have a very good three-point performance, and he normally is normally does. 13.5 rebounds and one steal per game. You know, you know what you're going to get out of Joel Embiid. Um, I think those three-point numbers go up as he gets a little bit healthier in this next series. They're going to need him to shoot threes as well. Um, number seven, Steph Curry with the most Steph Curry stat line ever. Um, 24.8 per game, uh, 48.6 from the field, 51.2% from three-point. Damn near automatic. Um, 6.8 rebounds for a guy his size is very impressive with five assists and 1.2 steals per game. You know, we all know we're getting out of Steph Curry in the playoffs, so that's like that's a Steph stat line. That's that's all you need. <laughs> um, number six, Giannis Antetokounmpo, absolutely dominated Detroit this entire series. Four games, twenty six point three points per game, fifty two point one percent field goal, um, twenty three point five from three point. That's that's just kind of been the story all year. Uh, I think that's something Giannis develops um, maybe in the off season. Um, 12 rebounds per game and 0.8 steals. Um, also, Giannis is the MVP. Number five, tied fourth with uh, scoring Kawhi Leonard, 27.8 points per game, 55.6 from the field, which is very impressive considering Kawhi shoots a lot of mid-range jumpers. And get this, out of Kawhi Leonard, 53.8% from three-point land. If he keeps that up throughout the entire playoffs, Kawhi Leonard, in my opinion, is the third most dangerous player in the playoffs behind a Giannis Antetokounmpo and a Kevin Durant. Like that—that's just my opinion. I—I I think if Kawhi is shooting like that, how big of a defender he is, shooting that good from the field, shooting 89.3% from the line, as well as 6.6 .6 rebounds, you know, three assists, not a facilitator, and, and 1.2 steals. That's that's dangerous. That's Kawhi Leonard winning rings with the Spurs dangerous. So that is definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, James Harden, 
Also averaged 27.8. He shot 37.4% from the from the field. I'm not yeah, I'm not I'm not loving that number from a guy who's supposed supposedly the MVP. Um 35% from 3, also shot about 12 three-pointers per game. Uh 6.8 rebounds, 8 assists, and uh 2.2 steals, which is actually very impressive and 1.4 blocks from James Harden. James does a lot of things well, and he's he's one of my favorite players in the league. But you know, I I think I think Russell Westbrook gets a lot of a lot of trash for how badly he shoots you know shoots field goal percentage, and uh, James just always somehow gets a pass. So I don't know. I think it's interesting. Number three, Paul George, and this is in probably points alone because I really wasn't too impressed with Paul throughout the playoffs, but. Anyway, um, 28.6 points per game, 43.6 from the field. Now, this is a key one, 31.9% from three-point land. Not the best, especially from a guy who kind of prides himself on being a three-point shooter. Um, 8.6 rebounds per game, that was pretty impressive. 3.6 assists, 1.4 steals. You know, was doing did a pretty good job defending. Um, wasn't great defending, though. I uh, saw a lot better out of him in the regular season. And um, really not a great field goal percentage for a guy who, you know, prides himself on being a shooter. And the three-point percentage was just not Paul George at all. Um, Number two, Kevin Durant, who's just been absolutely destroying everybody so far. Uh, 32 points per game, uh, 56.4% field goal percentage, as well as 38.7 from the three-point line, 95.5% free throws. He also is averaging 5.2 rebounds, 5.4 assists, and 1.6 steals a game. It, Kevin Durant is playing Kevin Durant playoff basketball. Um, if he keeps this up, Golden State will be in the finals. And number one, you know what? Everyone thinks Everyone thinks I'm going to be fucking mad about bringing up this number one guy right here. But you know what? What everyone doesn't know is I fucking have been raving. I love Damian Lillard. Number one, Damian Lillard, top performer in the playoffs so far. I am, even though Russ is getting destroyed right now by the media, I am loving the fact that Dame Lillard is finally getting the respect he deserves. Because I've been saying for years that Dame Lillard is one of the best point guards in the game who just never gets any respect. You know, he sometimes he can be defensive liability, but when you can score the way that Dame Lillard does, that doesn't matter. He's one of those guys that like will absolutely knock you out on a box score with his scoring alone. Uh, 33 points per game, 46.1% field goal uh, percentage, and for a shooter, almost strictly a shooter, that's very good. 48.1% from three-point land, that is outstanding. 84.6 from the free throw line, uh, 4.4 rebounds, 6 assists, and 2.4 steals. Dame Lillard played absolutely out of his mind. I hope he continues this up in the playoffs. Um, this is the Damian Lillard coming out party. You know, as much as I love Russell Westbrook, you know, I think rivalries like him and Lillard are just incredible for basketball, especially in playoff basketball. And, you know, the guy, Russ, who has been considered the better point guard for years, Damian Lillard finally taking that step and knocking off one of those guys. It's just, I, I eat it up, you know, I, I do. Like I said, I'm sure you're all you guys are all surprised to hear this, considering how much I've always raved about Russell Westbrook. But I'm so happy to see what Damian Lillard is doing right now. I'm just I'm, I love it. I love it. 
Um, and, you know, it continues with his game logs. In five games, game one, 30 points. Game two, 29 points. Game three, 32 points, including, you know, game four, you know, 24 points. That's still that's still very good. He was four for eight, four for eight from three-point land in that game. And then game five just, oh, my God, just takes over. He decided when he walked in that arena that Oklahoma City was going home. 10 for 18 from three-point land. Seven total rebounds, six assists, three steals, and 50 points, including the deep game-winning three. Respect. Cold-blooded Kobe mentality. Respect, Dame. Respect. Now, moving on next, um, Oklahoma City has been a just absolute train wreck. Just absolute train wreck throughout these playoffs. It was just absolutely embarrassing to watch. It was hard to watch this Oklahoma City team. I was so excited for them coming into the playoffs. I was thinking this was, you know, the year they finally start, you know, making making the run. You got Paul George, who just had damn near an MVP season. Um, obviously kind of trailed off at the end. You got Russell Westbrook, who is, you know, distributing the ball a lot better than he has in the past. You have a Dennis Schroeder coming off the bench, you know, almost giving you 20 points a game. You got Steven Adams, who is, you know, doing everything under the basket you need him to do. You have Jeremy Grant, who from three-point land has become an insanely, an insanely improved player, just continues to grow. You have a young Terrence Ferguson, who has also continued to grow with the team. You got a Norens Noel, who is, you know, came out of nowhere after, you know, basically not existing the past few years. I was, I was so excited for this Oklahoma City team, and I was just, it all fell apart. You know, and, and I think everything I'm about to say right now speaks volumes. I'm just, I'm just going to read the stats because they speak for themselves. Russell Westbrook, game one, 24 points, 10 assists, 10 rebounds, 8 for 17 shooting, 0 for 4 from three-point land. Absolutely killed Killed the team with how bad that this team shot from three-point land. Like, they got it going later in the series, but the first two games, it was just non-existent. Um, game two, five for 20 from the field, one for six from three-point land, 14 points, six turnovers, 11 assists, nine rebounds, one steal, but six turnovers, one for six from three-point land. Game three. Now, this is the game where I really thought that Oklahoma City was going to turn around. This is the, this was the moment where I even doubled down very stupidly and said that this was the turning point in the series, that Oklahoma City was going to bring it back. Um, 33 points, 11 assists, 5 rebounds, uh, 4 for 6 from 3-point land for Russell Westbrook in Game 3. I, I, I thought, I thought you know, I was dumb. I, 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 ate, I drank the Kool-Aid. I ate the Homer sandwich. I'm like, Oklahoma City's going to turn it around. Then we get game four. 14 points, three turnovers, seven assists, nine total rebounds, two for seven from three-point land, and five for 21 from the field. Just absolutely brutal. Game four was insanely important to win, to go back to Portland, at least with the series tied. Absolutely brutal. And game five... You know, don't let don't let the numbers fool you. Twenty nine points, fourteen assists, eleven rebounds. That looks great on paper. And the fourteen assists, I will still stand by, was a big reason that they were still in that game. 
Um, four for 11 from three-point land actually isn't all that bad. But where Russ absolutely killed himself in this game was 11 for 31 from the field. It, they're just they're hit a point in the game where Russ, you know, he felt it, but he just decided that he was just going to keep shooting until he shot himself cold. And that's exactly what happened, and that's exactly why Oklahoma City lost that game. I'm not trying to take anything away from Portland and what they did, especially Damian Lillard putting up fucking 50. Um, but Oklahoma City didn't do themselves any favors. And I think a big part of that is Paul George. You know, Okay, so Russ has three good games really in the middle of this. You know, three out of five You know, were still pretty good. And Paul George, um, game one... Yeah, he finished with 26 points, but it was almost too little too late at that point. 8 for 24 and 4 for 15 from three-point. In fact, at one point, I think he was 1 for 11 from three-point land. Um, you know, and that's 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 just something you're going to need a little bit more out of Paul George. Paul might not get all the opportunities that Russ gets, but he's his job essentially is to be that knockdown shooter. Um, next game, he scores 27, uh, 8 rebounds. Three assists and a steal. Um, two for seven, three-point land. 11 for 20 from the field. Um, he was really what kind of was keeping the team together at that point after Russell was just having a terrible game. Um, if you would have mixed that game that Paul had in that second game, a more efficient game, two for seven from the field where he didn't force himself to shoot threes with what Russ did in game one, I think there, you know, that's a different outcome. Um, and then game three, 22 points. Um, two for seven from the three-point line again. Three for 16 from the field. Just just simply not good. And that was in a win. Um, that was in Russ scored 33. He simply put, if Paul George, you know, takes advantage of his opportunities in that one, then that's just an absolute blowout. And they already won by 12. They could have won by 25-30. Um, and then game four, 32 points. This is one of his better games. Um, six assists, 10 rebounds, four for 10 from three point land, which is a lot more respectable. Eight for 21 for, you know, from the field, not loving it. And then game five, he did absolutely turn it on. Um, 36 points, um, three assists, 10 rebounds, three for eight from three point land and 14 for 20 from the field, which was actually very impressive. It was just, it just felt like those two couldn't click at the right times. That was the biggest problem. And then, you know, you have Schroeder. You know, Dennis Schroeder, who scored 13.8 in the series. I was expecting a lot more out of him. If Dennis could have put up maybe 17 or even 18 off the bench, you know, that would have been huge. Uh, I think Steven Adams, you know, he did base essentially what he does anyway, 11.8 with uh, 7.2 rebounds, you know, shooting well under, you know, shooting well under the rim. But, you know, I, I, I just think the biggest thing, I'm, I'm going to kind of close this up a little bit because I've talked a lot of basketball here. Um, biggest thing is the top three players on this team shot 31.9% for three-point, 32.4% from three-point, and 30% from three-point. That's what killed them. And it's funny because to show, you know, anyone, any of those Westbrook haters that are trying to say that he's the entire problem and that he's the reason they lost this series – he shot better from three-point land than Paul George. And Paul George is supposed to be the outside knockdown shooter. So, take with that what you will. Um, Dennis Schroeder, he shot 
good from the field, but just could not put the three-point shot in the basket when it, when it needed to happen. Um, plus minuses across the board aren't good. Um, which brings me to my final point. Billy Donovan needs to be fired. Billy Donovan cannot continue to go on in this team. Um, essentially, as much as I love Russ and Paul George, they run the show. And championship teams, that's just not how it's supposed to go. Your coach needs to have a voice in the locker room. And from what I see from Billy Donovan on the sidelines, from what I see, you know, his conf- press conferences after the games, he just he doesn't seem like he has any control of this team. And, you know, I said this last year when Oklahoma City got knocked out, but I can't stand watching that fucking guy sit on the bench and just not talking to his team. Like, any great head coach I've ever seen, including a Greg Popovich who's starting to get very old, even a George Carl at the end, anytime their team was coming, like bringing the ball down on offense or even going down on defense, that guy was, they were always standing up and they were always screaming to their players. You know, something to notice or a matchup or a play or anything like that. And I just, I didn't see it from Billy Donovan. I even saw him whispering to his, you know, his assistant coaches to say stuff. And then the assistant coach would go yell to the players. That's just, that's not a good way to build, you know, trust with, within your players. It's not a way to build yourself as like, you know, I'm not saying a coach needs to be an authoritarian, but there needs to be an underset set guidelines of what is expected from each player. You know, I don't see Billy Donovan as a guy to walk up to Russell Westbrook and be like, Russ, you got to stop shooting the ball. You're not shooting the ball good. You know, it, it. there needs to be that guy to walk up to Paul George in game one and be like, you got to stop shooting threes. You got to try to be a decoy right now, facil- facilitate the offense if you need to. Let's get the other guys going, and then the offense will come to you. It's It's that simple. You have to have the fucking the stones. You have to have the balls to say this to your supersize. Otherwise, they are going to run the show. And as smart as every basketball player in the history of basketball thinks that they are and thinks that they can run the show, they need those outside eyes to tell them to look at something they're not seeing. And I just don't see it with Billy Donovan. Um, and, you know, it's... I always look at it, you know, I'm a Bulls fan, so obviously I'm always going to use this kind of as an analogy of what I want in a coach. But, you know, there's something to be said about Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson. You know, Mike was a very competitive guy, and Mike was a very, you know, controlling guy on the court that he was going to do what he wanted to do and that he would get his teammates involved because he was a good teammate and everything like that. But at the end of the day, Mike was going to do what Mike wanted to do. And... That wasn't totally true because Phil Jackson was right there. Phil Jackson was a guy that Mike respected. That when Mike, when Phil told Mike to do something, he did it. And to get that kind of control from the best player in the world at that time, it shows that Phil Jackson had some stones. You know, it wasn't all just Phil Jackson being this basketball madman. It was him having the balls, the fucking balls, to walk up two-year star players and say, hey, this is what I want you to do. This is what we should do. This is what we need to do in the best interest of the team. What you, I think that's why Phil Jackson wrote up the play that won the Chicago Bulls the finals. Did that ball go to Michael Jordan? No, it went to Steve Kerr. 
because you know what? He had the balls to tell Mike, you're not the best percentage shot right now. So that's that. Billy Donovan needs to get the fuck out of there. Oklahoma City needs to start fresh with a new head coach. I don't think you need to trade Paul George or Russell Westbrook yet. I think there's still time to figure it out. Give them another coach. Give them somebody who ha- give them somebody who will tell them when they are not playing well and tell them either to take a seat or to change how they're playing. Anyway, before I move into baseball, and I will try to fly through baseball very quick because I know I'm getting far into this podcast. Um, I want you guys to go listen to this podcast that I've been listening to. It is called What We Learned This Week. Um, it is with my boy Jake and his friend Drake. I've known Jake for about three years. Um, one of the most solid dudes I know. Very straight up. Um, isn't isn't afraid to tell you how he feels about anything. Um, and it's just a very, very entertaining podcast. Um, I actually met Drake when I was with Jake once. We were at a mutual friend's 21st birthday party. And let me tell you, these two guys around each other, they were just fucking, they were fucking gold all night. They were fucking hilarious. Like, I, I mean... You know, alcohol might have had something to do with that, but these guys, like, you knew just kind of seeing how they played off each other with conversations or telling stories or anything like that. It was just hilarious. And you know what? They had the great idea to start recording their conversations and releasing a podcast. And uh, it's great stuff. What we learned this week. Um, yeah, dude, I, I've listened to both their episodes so far. They're fucking, they're riots. It reminds me a lot of uh, kind of the stuff that I dealt with growing up with some, you know, some of the situations they talk about. And, you know, just some of the shit that's just so off the wall. Um, I've talked I've talked to Jake a lot, and it's some. it reminds me of some of the shit that, like, me and him have kind of gone on tangents about. So it's just great stuff. They're available over on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, and SoundCloud. I know they're continuing to grow their uh, – grow their – their growth, so to say, but what, what we learned this week podcast, go check it out guys. So finally getting down to the last topic, I'm going to try to fly through this stuff real quick, but I want to talk some baseball, the Milwaukee Brewers over the last seven, over the last 10 games have just really fallen off. They are three and seven in the last 10. Um, Christian Yelich is Leading the way with this team, with you know hitting, doing everything. He already, he already has 13 home runs and 31 RBIs. I, I can rave about Christian Yelich all day long. What I want to talk about today, though, is I want to talk about Travis Shaw, and Jesus Aguilar, because they are just, they just, they haven't even showed up this year. Travis Shaw is batting 200. Um, he has eight RBIs in 24 games so far. Jesus Aguilar, who's supposed to be like the power guy, doesn't even have a home run. It's five RBIs, 18 strikeouts. Travis Shaw has 32 strikeouts in 24 games. Jesus Aguilar is batting 132. Um, in a year where starting pitching is really at a premium for the Milwaukee Brewers as well, um, we can't. They just can't afford to be those holes on the offense. Um, it's gotten to the point where the Brewers are actually starting um, Yasiel Grandal at first base because they're just there needs to be that now that needs to be in the lineup every day. Um, Eric Thames is having a better at first better year at first base than Hazy Sagular, and it's not even close. Eric Thames wasn't even on the playoff roster last year. Um, he's batting two seventy three, five home runs, and twelve RBIs. That's absolutely blowing both Aguilar and Shaw away. 
Mike Moustakis is picked up right where he left off. And, uh, yeah, he's basically taken over third. Hernan Perez is having a by far better season than both of them as well. He's taken over at second. You know, I, I really like Jesus, and I really like Travis Shaw, and I touched on this a little bit um, in a video I did last week. But something's got to give, and something's got to give, like, quick. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and go in full panic mode, but the Milwaukee Brewers' best starter right now is Zach Davies. And their second-best starter right now, as it stands, is Chase Anderson. That's a problem. Um, I think it's shown that Corbin Burns is not major league ready yet. I think he has some stuff that he has to work out. I think it was a good idea to send him down to AAA, um, especially with some of his his home run numbers he was giving up. Oh, my gosh, it was so bad. Um, But there needs – this can't be a wasted year. This can't be a wasted year. It's not time to go into panic mode. The Brewers just signed Gio Gonzalez to a one-year, $2 million deal. Um, he'll probably end up just getting thrown right in the starting rotation because of just kind of how, how dry the rotation is right now. Um, but something's got to get answered quick, uh, within the next month, month and a half, something really has to start clicking either with the starting pitching or Travis Shaw and Jesus Aguilar, because at this point they're looking very, very expendable. Um, I think Shaw a little bit more than Aguilar. I think Aguilar has earned the right to try to figure it out, and there's enough depth at first base to you know pull that off. But it's going to hit a point where we're going to need starting pitching, and they're the two most expendable guys on, on the team right now. Um, so basically what I'm going to go over here is some top targets that I think are going to start being brought up um, something to look at towards the deadline if kind of things continue at par at the course. Um, and, you know, just before I jump into this, I think it's obvious that if we do package Jesus and Travis Shaw in a trade, that there's going to be, there's going to have to be a pretty big name prospect involved in it to make this trade go. But if the team is still competing at that point in the season, or if it's starting to look like this team's about to fall off a cliff, and we really need starting pitching, then I can eat, I can definitely see a move being made and um, a little piece of the farm getting sent away. You know, and it's it's a question I've brought up a lot with the Brewers um, about whether it's time to consider a window. And if, if kind of things keep with the par to the course, then it is time to kind of consider a window. So I think it's time to start taking a look at some trade targets for the Milwaukee Brewers near the deadline. Um, Number one, Madison Bumgarner. I don't see him as any more than a one-year rental. I think he's going to want to get a big contract this offseason, and I don't think that's a contract the Brewers are going to want to jump into. So um, I I think it's a possibility, though. If we really think that we are going to make a run to the postseason, Mad Bum obviously has the experience, um, and I could see you know Milwaukee really going towards that. Um, number two, and this one is a little out there, um, specifically because of money purposes, but I would, somebody I would love to see Milwaukee again and somebody who's still pitching very well, and that would be Zach Grinke. Um, interesting thing here is Zach Grinke has a 15-team no-trade list, and the Brewers are not on that list. So it is not like he wouldn't be you know, open 
to coming back to Milwaukee. But the only thing that would really hold up a trade like this, and um, especially with Arizona looking like they're going to hit rebuild mode, I, I think it is a possibility. But he's owed an average of $35 million a year for the next three seasons. And, you know, simply put, that's got to be money that the Brewers are going to want to spend if that's the trade that they're going to make. Um, and I think that goes into, like, a bigger thing to where what's what's the limit that the Milwaukee Brewers are really going to spend? If the, if the Milwaukee Brewers are going to try to continue to build a winner, if they're going to end up signing Christian Yelich down the line to a big deal, which he will almost certainly demand, and Milwaukee would be crazy not to sign him to, you know, when's it going to hit Milwaukee finally really kind of digging in the pockets to really start, br- you know, either bringing in big names or keeping big names? And um, that kind of really jumps into my next thing is uh, number three, Noah Syndergaard from the Mets. And I can see him as very well being the biggest name at the trade deadline. Now, he would have two years of arbitration after this, which would kind of make this a decent deal. But Syndergaard is someone that if you're going to trade for him, you're going to give up a lot for him. And it's somebody that you're going to want to lock almost immediately. Like, I, I don't think the Brewers should trade for Noah Syndergaard, even if they had the opportunity to, if they don't plan on paying him. That's somebody that shouldn't be a rental. He's going to cost too much capital, that he's somebody that needs to be kept if he's traded for. But Noah Syndergaard is a very strong possibility, and that would be a guy that would be able to front your starting rotation for years to come. And you'd probably get him at a better price this year because he started off kind of shaky. And number four, and I think this is actually probably the most realistic one, it's staying with the New York Mets, um, Zach Wheeler. I think he's the best value. He is only 28 years. He's only 28 years old, which you know might sound old, but in baseball, as long as you still have your stuff, as long as you're a pitcher and not a thrower, you can last in the league. And that's why a Zach Greinke has lasted so long. Um, he would also be a lot cheaper to sign. I think that would probably be the best value. You'd be giving up a lot less than you would for a Syndergaard, which will be like the sexier option. But I think Zach Wheeler. Brings a lot to the table. He could definitely be a number one on the staff or number two if, say, a Corbin Burns or Brandon Woodruff continue to develop or even a Zach Davies. You know, you never know. And um, he'd be a lot cheaper to sign. He'd be a lot easier to keep. Now, the reason I brought up the thing about uh, the Brewers trying to keep, you know, trying to spend money, really, to keep this thing going. Now, get this. Um Officially this year, they went over the one po- the one billion mark in uh, in uh, value, and I think that's I think that's really important to uh, note because that shows that when the Brewers are winning, shows that people in Wisconsin are willing to go watch this team. They had in one year a fourteen percent change in their value, so I think. I think we're hitting a point that if Milwaukee continues to win, if Milwaukee you know dishes out some money to try to win, that they will get that money back. I really that's the biggest thing with the Milwaukee Brewers is they need to be able to see that money come back. And I think in this one year, how much of a difference they've made in their value of the team, I think it's shown that the money will come. It's it's like it's like the field of dreams. You build the team, you put them on the field. The fans will come. They will spend money. They will buy jerseys. Milwaukee isn't that small of a market, you know, and the state has completely, like, flooded to Milwaukee with how well the Bucks have been doing. 
And as long as the Bucks do well and the Brewers continue to do well, that the franchise will continue to go up. So I think it needs to hit a point where Milwaukee needs to start considering really spending some money. Now the Chicago White Sox, um, five and five in the last ten. Uh, I'm not expecting a lot out of the White Sox really in this year. Um, I'm just liking to see growth. Tim Anderson still one of the top hitters in all of baseball right now with a three point uh, three eight three average, um, nine stolen bases, four home runs, fourteen RBIs. Um, Yoan Moncada batting three oh nine. James McCann uh, at catcher has been a pleasant surprise batting three forty nine. Um, Jose Abreu is finally getting it around. He's finally up to 231. Eloy Jimenez, as a rookie, is batting a very reasonable 231 as well. Um, the last six games for the Chicago White Sox, uh, James McCann has a home run and four RBIs. Jose Abreu, one home run, nine RBIs. He's batting 333, really turned it around. Yomar Sanchez, as well, has turned it around to see he's batting 400. Um... So there's fight in this team. There's definitely grit. There's fight in this team. Um, not really a whole lot to be said right now about the White Sox because, you know, simply put, they're not doing great. Um, pitching is continuing to be, a, like, a, a huge problem outside of Carlos Rodon, who is having an incredible year so far. Um, but it's it's growth. You're seeing a lot of growth in young players. You're seeing growth in Eloy Jimenez. You're seeing growth in Yoan Mankato. You're seeing growth in Tim Anderson. And as more players, I'm assuming around the deadline or, you know, in July are going to start getting called up, you're going to continue to see growth with this team. And there's really a culture that's being built there that you can definitely see. Um, so, yeah, definitely. All right. So before I'm I, and I'm flying through this, I know um, before I jump out of here with the White Sox, I want to do a little comparison. And these are all third basemen. One third baseman has four home runs or 21 hits, four home runs, nine RBIs and 2.44 average. That's player 1. Player 2, 19 hits, one home run, eight RBIs, 2.38 average. Okay? Player 3, 27 hits, four home runs, 17 RBIs, 2.78 average. And player 4, 29 hits, six home runs, 18 RBIs, 3.09 average. Player number one, Manny Machado, one of the highest paid players in baseball. Player number two, Chris Bryant, one of the highest, you know, well-known third basemen, third baseman in you know all of baseball, cons widely considered one of the best third basemen in baseball. Player three, Nolan Arenado, just got a giant contract, um, hits definitely with power. Considered one of the better third basemen in baseball. Player number four. And remember, player number four had the best stats across the board out of all these guys. Yoan Mankata. Outstanding. Yoan has continued to grow every single day. And he is going to be an absolute superstar. Um, now quickly flying through the Chicago Cubs. Um, eight and they are 12 and 10. They're third in the NL central brewers are also fourth in NL central. I forgot to bring that up. Um, Cubs are eight and two in their last 10. Um, Jason Hayward has continued to smack the leather off the ball, batting 333. Javier Baez, uh, continue another great year, uh, batting 312. Uh, Des Colasso is also batting 310. Wilson Contreras, 306. Dave Boat, 304. So, uh, 
a lot of those guys besides Hayward and Baez kind of, you know, out of nowhere offense. You know, Contreras obviously is obvious offense, but, you know, he usually doesn't bat that high of an average. And then you have uh, Chris Bryant, who's batting 238, and Anthony Rizzo is batting 205, and a Kyle Schwarber, who's batting 191, and an Al Mora Jr., who's batting 182. So guys are stepping up on the Chicago Cubs, definitely. But it's just not the guys you'd expect, I guess. But in the last five, that all being said, Anthony Rizzo has one home run, four RBIs, and is batting 400. uh, Chris Bryant is batting 313 with two RBIs. Will Contreras has four RBIs, batting 267. So, yeah, the team's coming around, definitely. Uh, They started the year, actually, four and eight. And now they're eight and two in the last ten. Um, Cubs are really hitting their stride, and they're going to be a scary team here at the end. Um, the last <laughs> I got to bring this up. Um, I think a lot of people are going to Tyler Chatwood really early um, in his last start because Lester is still injured. Um, six innings pitched, two hits, and three strikeouts. It's very, very good, very good start for him. And Jose Quintana, who's just kind of popped out of nowhere. So Jose Quintana. Um, as far as the MLB ranks, is tied for 12th in strikeouts and tied for 7th in Ks per 9 innings. So he's really turning around his slow start to really becoming a dominant pitcher that he is used to being. And a little player spotlight here, Jason Hayward, the guy who has been considered one of the worst contracts in baseball for like the past 2-3 to years. Get this, Top five in batting average among MLB outfielders with at least 20 games played. He's batting 333. And second among MLB outfielders in in on-base percentage with 450. Below only Mike Trout and right above Christian Yelich. How about that for Jason Hayward? He's easily the player to watch on the Chicago Cubs as he continues his strong season. All right. Got through the baseball Going to go through the five hot takes of the week, and we're going to finish her off here, guys. Not going to go into a lot of detail about these. They are just the takes that I'm giving you. They're hot. They're fucking hot off the press, and you're going to live with them. Number five, Billy Donovan will be fired. I'm guaranteeing that one. Number four, Derek Carr will get traded today during the NFL draft. Number three, Vlad Guerrero Jr. will not finish his career in Toronto. Number two, if Drew Locke falls to 32, the New England Patriots will draft him. And number one, San Antonio will take the Denver Nuggets to game seven. All right, guys. Like I said before, check out my boys podcast, Jake and Drake. The What We Learned This Week. Thank you to Fire Fences for the official theme of the Sports Rant with Duke Coughlin. We got a lot of crazy, awesome shit moving forward. But it is 3.44 in the morning, and it is time to get the fuck out of here. All right. This has been the Sports Rant with Duke Coughlin. I never it was going to be forever. You always said to me that it's now or never.